Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. This is Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh and hopefully less fan-biased eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 2, The Circle. Let's just jump into it. Scott, can you tell us about this episode? Yes, of course. So you remember the circle from the last episode? They're still at it. So they're, they're a group of Bajorans that are trying to get all non-Bajorans out of Bajor. So just to give you a little preamble. So Lee Nallis is going to replace Kira as the, as the liaison between the Federation and the Bajoran government. Cisco is upset, and he has a bit of one of them like undercurrent conversations with Minister Jaroessa, where they're like, "What are we really saying? This is some chess shit." He says that Jaro says, "Well, this is a promotion for Kira, even though they don't have a position for her on Bajor, and Cisco should be happy that Lee will be there because Lee Nallis is really becoming a popular person in the culture and the the lore at this point." And then uh, he gets a, Cisco gets a call from his son, Jake. He's like, "Come to your house, man." And they get to the house, and there is the circle graffiti that has vandalized their house. I feel like this may be an allusion to like graffiti of synagogues, mosques, and other houses of worship in the '90s. And then we get to the intro. Da-da-da-da. Odo is pissed. He does not think that Kira should allow this. They flirt a little bit. Kira is sort of resigned to what is going on. She's conflicted 
because she cares about her people, but she also thinks that she's better equipped at the job that she has. Then Bashir, Dax, O'Brien, Vedic, Burrell, Quark all come in one by one to congratulate Kira and bid farewell. But um, like they have like a party. And Kira admits for the first time that these people aren't just her colleagues, they're her friends. And it's kind of a nice little moment. Bejor is getting bad. There's a lot of civil unrest. And uh, she is invited to the monastery in Bejor that Bar- that Vedic Baral is. And, and they start flirting. Kira wishes Lee the best. Lee doesn't want the job. With great power comes great responsibility, yada, yada. But on Bejor, Kira is working on some rocks. She's not really doing that well in the monastery. She's lost. She feels helpless. And um, Brawl, like, yo, peep game, brings Kira to the inside of the monastery that, they're, that, they're, that they are praying at and lets Kira be with the orbs, which, if you remember from the first season, are a religious artifact that can help Bajorans connect to the prophets or get visions. So she gets a vision where she's being denounced by all the Vedics and then also has an erotic vision with Baral. And I have to say, it was a pretty sexy scene. I'm not going to lie. The sexy part. Then we, we go to Deep Space Nine. Quark is ready to leave the ship and is upset and is, talks to Odo. And he's like, the Circle, for, I know from some sources that the Circle are arming and stockpiling weapons from the Kasari. Odo asks Quark to find out intel and deputizes him in like a loophole, sort of like Shaq or Steven Seagal, but Quark. Cisco fears a coup is on the horizon. A curfew is initiated and Lee gets a bodyguard even though he doesn't want one. On Bajor, Kira doesn't want to talk to Baral about her vision. Baral reveals that in his vision he saw Kira. He doesn't say whether it was sexy or not. Then our our favorite passive-aggressive priest, Vedic Wynn, shows up, comes to the monastery, and just is like, lays on the passive-aggressive attacks thick. He's like, why did you non-bureaucratically ask to see the orbs? And he's like, we don't have to. And she's like, yeah, but you should. And he's like, yeah, but we don't have to. And she's like, okay. And just like all together, a bad vibe. Cisco meets another Bajoran general, Krim, and they talk about the Krasari and the tensions. And he reveals, uh, Cisco reveals that the Krasari are there. And there, and Krim is like, I don't know what to do because we really don't want to fight other Bajorans. We don't want to have that sort of thing. And Cisco's like, can I have Kira back? And Krim's like, that's beyond my purview, but you know, you could have asked that before you shared this information. That was that could have been something to share. And Cisco's like, that's not me, dog. That's not how I do things. And he's like, oh, I appreciate your character. I will remember this about you. So Deep Space Nine is trying to hold the Krasari vessel to try to see if they have any goods. They find nothing but Odo morphs on the ship. He like is a blob. He's a rat. He's all this stuff. Ben comes to see Kira at the monastery. He says the coup is imminent, really wants Kira to come back. Then Kira is kidnapped by three cloaked people, much like when Quark was kidnapped in the last episode. It turns out the Krasari are indeed transporting weapons, and 
a goal. And then we get to see the circle people. And who is the head of the circle? None other than Jaro. He purposefully brought Lee to Deep Space Nine because he might try to stop what's going on. And he doesn't want to stop what's going on. He's like, we need to change Bajor for the better. Jaro wants to really wants to know what Cisco might do if a coup forms. So he starts trying to torture Kiro. Then through Quark, they find the location of the circle. It's in a maze in a peninsula. The main players that you would expect to go, go. There's a standoff. They hear Kira screaming. They rescue her. They implore Lee to use his politics to stop Jaro. Then we see Jaro and Wynn meeting. Um, and Wynn's basically like, I support you, but I can't do it publicly right now. And he's like, they talk like in political moves. They have like a tete-a-tete. Jaro leverages power moves. And she's like, okay, well, if you're going to give me some power, I guess we can maybe support this as a treat. The coup starts. And Cisco decides that he's going to pull out the Federation and evacuate the whole station as attack ships are coming to the station. And they're like, we have seven hours to get rid of everybody. And and O'Brien's like, it's going to take days for a full evacuation. Like, take the Federation out. Everybody leave. And he's like, well, I guess some people will be here or something of that nature. And uh, Cisco's like, I'm ready for action. And then we get to be continued, which will bring us to the conclusion of this three-part season premiere. Thanks for the recap, Scott. What are your initial thoughts of this episode? Much like the first episode, it's a very expository episode that sort of just reveals and lets you know the players of what's going on and gives you a little insight into what how the show is going to sort of operate now. Because this is, this is one of our first, one of the few multi-episode arcs. It's not going to be the last. And it's just setting up some conflicts that we're going to start dealing with this season. I think it's a good episode, not a great episode. It's probably a three out of five. Are there any scenes that stood out for you? All of the sort of almost like Aaron Sorkin-esque like political speak stuff was really entertaining because I can't stand shows like The West Wing because it's like, you know, democratic propaganda. So like rewatching these shows and episodes and like Cisco's like, well, you know that if you do this, it would mean this and we wouldn't want that. And like the little undertone uh, currents. Um, I like to see that I liked seeing Odo and Kira courting, flirting for a second. It's interesting that in the world of Bajor, you could have erotic visions in your, in your faith, which I think is pretty rad. Yeah. It, it was very much like a, let's get to, let's get to the next episode episode, but they did it in a way that was still entertaining. So the first thing that popped out at me was the relationship between Odo and Kira, which is getting interesting in this episode and so far in this season. Odo made explicit that he sees Kira as another person who lives by their own personal code. Going back to your point about expository, he literally just says that. Now, there are not only implications to their past history, but also seems like foreshadowing. 
that sometimes to do the right thing, you got to break the rules. And I think that's part of what fans like about the Star Trek franchise, that the crew will follow their own code when they have to. They're not 100% rigid to the Federation, which is another difference between Star Trek and its real-life analogs. We also see that Odo has friends in the Bajoran provisional government. This seems like writers this season are shifting the way they're writing about this shapeshifter. I also think it's not uncommon in shows when they get to the second season to sort of just retcon, soft retcon some of the vibes from the first season as they're like, oh, this is going to last a little longer and we're going to have to. I think he's softer by season two and is purposefully written that way. And also, if you are a centrist or a liberal centrist, in your mind, these incongruencies can actually make sense. It might not make sense in our head canon, but it can make sense in theirs. For instance, the war criminal that is George W. Bush, right? <laughs> Somehow liberals are like, nah, he's not that bad, right? Despite saying he did all these bad things. It doesn't make sense in my head canon, but it somehow makes sense in their head canon. Yeah, there's people that are like, give us the old good, good old days of when George W. Bush and him flirting with Michelle Obama. We love that guy and his paintings and his masterclass on leadership. Yay! <laughs> Authentic leadership and how to handle crisis. Or like, you know, right now, uh, Liz Cheney is like being heralded as this great person. Like she doesn't have terrible politics. She just doesn't like Donald Trump. Yeah, you're not going to headcanon me into thinking these people are soft. So there you go. Using this, it's a way to analyze the real world, to kind of look at what the writers are trying to do to us and then be like, hey, what is the media and these political organizations trying to do to us? A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Now, let's talk about that horny, sexy scene that you mentioned earlier. It kind of seemed, in the arc of this episode, disjointed. It just was like there by itself, and I'm assuming it's going to lead somewhere in a future episode. I just hope it doesn't end up being a cringe plot point because this was very 90s Skinamax DVD cover vibe. Yeah, it was like some Red Shoe Diaries. And then later, Minister Jaro finally reveals himself to be the villain with a point trope. Kira, as the liberal trope, literally says, you have to vote to change the government. Except, Kira, you literally fought to get rid of Cardassia because you couldn't vote them away. This is now the generic plot of all superhero movies. We also find out the Cardassians are secretly helping a coup on Bajor 
to promote regime change to ultimately solidify their power in the region. Some Henry Kissinger shit. I was about to say, like, there's a lot of real politic going on in this episode, which was like Kissinger's shit. Yes. Then later, a Federation admiral literally describes a color revolution, which is a type of destabilization tactic used by the West after the fall of the Soviet Union. This only makes Cardassia more and more like the U.S. They're secretly helping a color revolution, promoting it, inspiring it, fueling it to try to disrupt Bajor. I was like, oh shit, in this episode, Cardassia is America, destabilizing countries and supporting, encouraging coups. For them, not only is the wormhole good for business, good for them, they're still pissed off that that Bajor is not an asset of theirs anymore. So they're, they will be happy to destabilize and humiliate and mess with Bajor as much as they can. Because they're, they're colonialists, they're imperialists, they're... Ugh. Along with that, then, later on, with Jaro and Wynn, at the very end, we see, at face value, a religious leader and a political leader joining hands. But the way it was written and acted reminded me of an older narrative of politicians trying to appoint the next royal successor. So like Churchill and the next queen. It very much had that sort of British colonial power vibe or symbolic power marrying political power. Well, it's, yeah, it's the, it's, it's the marrying of church and state in a culture planet where the church has that sort of power where they can really inform politics. It's, it's somewhat of a theocracy in that way, but it's not, but it is, but it's not, but it is. So, and, and it's not supposed to be explicit. It, this sort of thing is, would be considered very improper. And these two characters are two of my least favorite characters right now. <laughs> um, when, I try not to put it all on Wynn because I, I want to make sure that that's not sort of part of any sort of internalized, not internalized uh, misogyny that I've not thought about to be much harsher on that character versus a different character. And I find her character to be one of the, also because it's, she's, the acting of her, the acting is so good for her. She lays on the passive aggressiveness, the double talk, the the nuance, the the yeah, the backyard deals in such a powerful way that I'm really taken aback by how dastardly she comes off. But at the same time, this other dude is like torturing and kidnapping Bajorans. Um committing hate crimes, doing all types of terrible shit. But I think I have my own issues with people that do things in the name of religion that that activates me because of my own internalized understanding of my faith. Well, my people, because I, I wouldn't cons my my faith is is not quite Jewish, but my 
it, that's a complex thing. I very much consider myself Jewish, but I also, my belief system is not that. So there's some internalized stuff there where, where um, people use our struggle, our faith as a way to do selfish things just really activates me in, in, a, in a certain way where political political things bother me in a different way. Both of these characters bother me a lot. What I notice about it, especially with where we are today, is like how professional they are, how much decorum they have. And that's often the real baddies, right? Like it's easy to point at somebody like Trump, but it's people who are professional, who don't act like Trump, who don't act like a buffoon, who act civil, who say the right things, who carry themselves like Minister Jaro. They're the ones doing all the real bad shit behind the scenes, but they're handling it more like accountants, like lawyers, instead of like a direct hands-on general or something like that, right? And that's often how somebody like Kissinger does it, right? And that's why he's considered by so many as this honorable statesman, because they're seeing statesmen and honorable as a personality trait. They're basing it off of how he acts rather than the results of his actions or his actions. I can't read into what the writers mean, but that is directly playing onto something. That that is how it is in real life. Often the most dastardly people are the ones that are seemingly most professional or they're professional bad people. So they could do things with decorum, with professionalism, because it is cold and sterile and sanitized. We think of the number of people that are killed as accounting metrics. And especially because like the people are acting so professional, like they're not enjoying it. Somehow then that's okay. Somehow then that's grown up stuff. Somehow then it's like the West Wing. Like if you do these things in a West Wing type of way, then that's okay. And I think that's like a weird bias that people carry into their politics and how they think about politics. This is how they are able to handle when they find out these terrible things happen and it doesn't change their opinion about the people who committed these things or the country that did these things. Have you seen this video of this very young Scottish politician owning Piers Morgan on TV because Piers Morgan is very upset that this young man tweeted that he was kind of happy that Winston Churchill died? Like on the anniversary of death, he was kind of just like, yeah, dude was whack. And Piers Morgan has him on the show and tries to like do his like classic Tory thing and also his classic Piers Morgan thing to be like, how dare you? Winston Churchill was one of the greatest men of the 20th century. He did all these great things. And this other guy just like calmly is explaining like, no, these are reasons why he's not. These are reasons why you're blinded. And he just keeps on getting less mad. And Piers Morgan is getting madder and madder. And it's like, why are you smiling? We would be goose-stepping in London if it wasn't for Winston Churchill. And he did all these great things. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're you're wrong. So we have this idea of of like, or even have you heard of the term founder chic? It's this, it's this phenomenon that is probably most evidenced in the musical Hamilton, where you sort of rewrite the founding fathers as 
like these chic guys doing their best, flawed people that were just doing their best and sort of forgetting some of their worst. So I think that's that's a, a important thing to put into context in these discussions that there are people, yeah, mostly in the center world that'll be like, you know, Harry Truman did what he had to do. These, you know, we did what we had to do. And these are great men. And I'm like, nah. It doesn't take like creating a musical that costs way too much money about people rapping about the founding fathers to know that they were pieces of shit. And people were doing that with Shinzo Abe too, who is a terrible leader, a fascist, but he was a statesman, right? So even me saying, but he was a statesman, it's like mocking, right? Because it's supposed to be understood. That's, that's supposed to mean something. But if you actually like think about those words, like what the fuck does that mean? It doesn't mean shit. Why is them being professional and a statesman like a license to be a terrible person to cause damage or whatever? And so there's all these like default assumptions. There's all these like automatic beliefs that you just inherit, that you just have, and you don't know why you have them and you never chose to have them. And so I just look at what's before me. To be honest with you, I don't give a fuck what happens after, right? Like what are the next episodes? Like I just have to work with what I have in front of me, right? Like it is impossible to talk about these things if we're always supposed to hedge for what may happen later. It's just like how it is in the real world. I can't have good faith in these people doing terrible things in our name for this country in hopes that something in the future will be good. Oh, you don't know. It could all be for the greater good. Like I just got to work with what they're doing right now and what they've done in the past and what's before me. And so for me, this show is like this analog and a lens to look at how everything happens here. There's so many things to learn all the time. It's much easier to be a bad guy. It's much easier to be a conservative. You just say, fuck this shit. I'm an asshole. Watch YouTube videos and go on. Not to say that there aren't smart people. I think Tucker Carlson is very smart. I think, um, obviously, like William F. Buckley, really smart. The people holding the strings, really smart. But a lot of the people that get manipulated aren't like, I have to do the work. I have to do the reading. They're just in. Um, the, the writing team changes a lot through this. I don't know if Ronald D. Moore is involved just yet, but he really comes in like a wrecking ball. Overall, I think this was a very complex and nuanced episode that set up a lot for the next episodes. There was so much political world building happening. In season one, I either enjoyed or didn't enjoy an episode on its own merit. But this episode actually does a job of making you look forward to the next episode. So the writing has definitely developed. And you said you gave it a three out of five. I don't disagree with that number. What it showed me, though, was like now they're showing a potential where like they could write a layered episode. Get ready for it, baby. <laughs> Boom. So then what is coming up? Because I'm looking forward to it. This is like the first time actually looking forward to the next episode. Not that I dread watching DS9, but more like it gave me crumbs to be like, I want to know how this ends up. Whereas usually in the first season, everything wrapped up in the episode, right? That's music to my ears. Uh, the next episode is called The Siege, and it's exactly what it sounds like. 
That's all you're going to say? That's all I'm going to say. All right, then. Until then. Bye.